we are going to be continuing in our series, The Sabbath and the Mark of God. And I want to open up tonight uh, by beginning to talk about the reality uh, that despite Christianity, you think about this, despite Christianity having abandoned the Sabbath, and I, I make that statement in general, make no mistake, there has been a remnant that has not And I mean since the very beginning of it all. When the gospel went out, there has been a remnant. With every generation that passed through, there's been a remnant that has stayed true, that that didn't forget it, that didn't abandon it. And I think this is pretty important when you consider, when you start investigating the Shabbat, or when you consider the common uh, traditional viewpoint of Christianity today, in regard to the fact that they don't believe Christians have ever kept the Sabbath. And so what we do today, what Christians are doing today, this is nothing new. We're right on line, as I mentioned before. We're, we're right on point. The problem with that is, is Scripture tells a different story. You think of the book of Acts. We know Gentiles were in a synagogue on the Sabbath. We know from Acts 15, the expectation was is that they would be in the synagogue on the Shabbat hearing the Torah, hearing from Moses for generations to come. That was the expectation. Not just that, but we have history as well. And not just history, Christian history testifying to this. Do you remember that what we read out of the council that came and uh, that met in Laodicea? And think about this. Now, hold on. Fourth century. All this time has taken, that's passed, right? And we get to the 4th century, and then we come to the Council of Laodicea, and this is what we read. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. Now, as I mentioned before, when you bring something like this, there was the only reason the councils met is they were dealing with matters that needed to be resolved during the day. So here we are already into the fourth century, and we're seeing there's a problem. In their eyes, there's a problem. They have believers that are clinging to Shabbat. They're clinging to the Sabbath, and they're viewing this as a problem. We have a problem. This needs to be dealt with. This is the point of the councils. They get together. They pass canonical law. To the point that they said, anyone that would rest on the Shabbat, they need to be cut off. They need to be cut off from the faith, cut off from Christ, as is said here. Let me give you another example. And this comes to us in the form of commentary uh, from Nehemiah Gordon. Uh, he's a Jewish scholar. He's a, he's a Karaite Jew, uh, not a believer in Yeshua. And he's quoting R.A. Pritz. As R.A. Pritz, he looks back to Christianity and how it interacted with Shabbat uh, observance. And listen to what he says. When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I want to stop right there. You should understand that after reading this, you know what that means. You know this means post-Constantine. This means once Constantine came to power, once the Edict of Milan happened, what happened? Honestly, Rome became what we would say very loosely what is known as a Christian empire because it was a friend of Christianity. It gave it a platform by which to thrive and grow. And so the context is when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, so now we're talking the 4th century, 
The Nazarenes were persecuted. Why were they persecuted? Because they observed the seventh-day Sabbath. Their synagogues were closed, their books were burned, and they were forced underground. Think about that. So here we see people still continuing to keep the Shabbat, not abandon it. But isn't that fascinating? Here you have this move where Christianity is afforded protection because typically they were being thrown in the Colosseums. They were being killed at will. Constantine rides to power and he gives them full protection. He gives them uh, the potential to, to, to grow with being unhindered and non-persecuted, not experiencing horrific persecution. But look at what is said here. There's still persecution happening. It's interesting to specifically those who observe the Shabbat. And you know what that kind of makes me think of? It kind of makes me think of the Apostle Paul speaking to his protege, Timothy, and 2 Timothy, right? Where he literally, he talks about all who seek to live godly in the Messiah Yeshua, they will suffer persecution. All who seek to live godly in the Messiah Yeshua. What you're reading on the screen is just that. It's just that. These people are clinging on to truth. They will not let go of what God has commanded them. And you know what? They paid for it. They paid for it dearly to the point that their places of worship were being burned to the ground. Let me take this a step further, and we can go all the way. Let's push further into history. We can go to the late 6th, early 7th century. And guess what? We have history, and again, Christian history, telling us there were still believers, Christians, observing Shabbat. This is an amazing thing. And this comes to us uh, through a man known as Pope Gregory. And Pope Gregory, still to this day, he's, he's held in the highest of regards. If you're, if you're a Catholic, you, you don't, he doesn't need an introduction. Uh, and I'll even say this. This guy carries such clout that uh, he even flows into Protestantism. You don't see that often. John Calvin calling him the last good pope that served. So you think about who this guy is. He's got a lot of clout. He's got a lot of prestige behind him. One of the things that he is known for was his writing capabilities, his, his skill to pen. In fact, today we have over 850 writings from him, from Pope Gregory the Great. Obviously, that's a, a humble term that he's been given. <laughs> but you think about the writings, and when you think about historical documents, how powerful that is, this is going to rank in the very top tier of antiquities, of being able to have this many writings from one man going all the way back to the 6th century. That's amazing. You think about this. Well, one of his writings is of particular importance to me, and I want to share that with you tonight because it proves, it just continues to prove my point. And this particular one is actually, it's addressed to the Roman citizens. And this is what we read. Gregory, servant of servants of God, to his most beloved sons, the Roman citizens. And he goes on and he says this, It has come to my ears that certain men of perverse spirit have sown among you some things that are wrong and opposed to the holy faith so as to forbid any work to be done on the Sabbath day. Proof. Here we are going into the 7th century, and there's still problems with Christians running around and keeping the Shabbat. They're keeping the Sabbath. Now, what's interesting about this is if 
you paid close attention to what was just said. This is not just about people observing the Shabbat as though they're just sitting there surviving. What are they doing? They're going forth and they're proclaiming Shabbat to their believing Christian brothers and sisters. They're preaching the Sabbath and they're asking them, they're encouraging them, please stop working on the Shabbat. God gave us the command to stop and we're to assemble and we're to get together. And you want to know how impactful this was. Keep in mind, what we're reading here, this is not just some fringe group, uh, pun intended, fringe group sitting in the corner of some field and whispering to their friends, their Christian friends, you, you know, we keep Shabbat, you might want to try it. It's nothing like this. This was so profound that it reached the ears of Pope Gregory himself, meaning that these people that had this beautiful conviction of the living God to keep his commandments, when they went out, they were powerful. They went out in power, and man, did they cause a stir. They were preaching the Sabbath to sanctify it, to keep it holy. Unfortunately, uh, Pope Gregory, he didn't appreciate their labors, shall we say. Look at some of the descriptors he gives this. Perverse spirit. The men who go out and preach Shabbat, they're of a perverse spirit. He doesn't just say that. He says they're wrong. Just flat out wrong. And they're opposed to the holy faith. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You can't get more intense than that. You can't use stronger language than what we're seeing here. Or maybe you can. Because as we continue, listen to what he says. What else can I call these but preachers of Antichrist? who when he comes will cause the Sabbath day as well as the Lord's day to be kept free from all work. In other words, Pope Gregory is saying here that you'll know the mark of the beast. You will know the spirits of Antichrist. You know how you'll know? Because he'll come to you in the form of man who will tell you you need to keep the Sabbath holy. You think about that statement. And what did Isaiah the prophet say in chapter 5? Woe, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. I'm going to tell you something. This is the MO of Hasatan. This is the MO of Satan. He always takes light and he calls it darkness and he'll take, he'll take darkness and he'll transfer it to light. This is what he does. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. I mean, it reminds me, there's so many things that we could start digging into in scripture in regard to this. And you think of just the one off my head is uh, in Matthew 12, where Yeshua, he literally casts out demons with power and he has compassion on the people. So he's casting out demons and the religious Pharisees, they come on the scene and say, they cry foul. They actually said what he did was evil and they said he did it by the ruler of evil, the ruler of demons. You think about that. This is what Satan does. He'll come and he'll take something that's holy and pure, like what Yeshua did by casting out demons and he will come and say, no, that's pure evil an attempt to get people to run the other direction. And he goes on to further explain his statement. For because he pretends to die and rise again, he wishes the Lord's day to be, ha- uh, to be had in reverence. And he's talking about the Antichrist here, pretending to die and rise again. And because he compels the people to Judaize, meaning to conform to Jewish ways, which let's remind you, this is a Jewish book, that has Jewish apostles talking about the Jewish Messiah. It's Jewish, okay? 
So he compels the people to Judaize that he may bring back the outward right of the law and subject the perfidy of the Jews to himself. He wishes the Shabbat to be observed. I mean, flat out, Pope Gregory comes out here. He proclaims it is Satan that wants you to keep the Sabbath holy. And now what do you do when you start spreading that? Well, that's going to make Christians who, who believe in Yeshua, it's going to make them run the other direction. I mean, absurd doesn't begin to describe what we just read. And yet, I'm going to tell you, the most disturbing component of this all is the fruit of this ideology. The concept of this ideology is in the church today. And that's a reality. I mean, Christians are running away from the Sabbath. When they hear law, they think curse. You know, this, is, this is where we get into ideological subversion. This is where we get into priming, what is called priming, trigger terms that have been established that Satan has come in to brainwash so that when you speak terms of holiness, the immediate thought is, no, that's a curse. Someone says, well, I remember growing up, you know, growing up in you know, assemblies of God, uh, really good, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, but I can remember, I mean, when people said law, that was my reaction is, I don't want to hear what you got to say about that. That's a curse. I know to stay away from it. I know to run the other direction. That's called ideological subversion. I mean, that's, that's exactly what that is. And when people talk about feasts or festivals, I don't have nothing to say about it. Shabbat, I got nothing to say about that. It's completely Jewish. So all these terms are trigger terms. I've been primed. I've been subverted. I mean, you think about what is going on here. This is, this is scary stuff, what we're, what we're uh, delving into. Now, <clears throat> because of what Pope Gregory said in, in this epistle, uh, and I'm specifying here the fact that uh, anyone who preaches Shabbat is actually a preacher of Antichrist, I want to point out something. When we look at history, when we look at Scripture, we actually discover that both, both history and Scripture, they give a completely different assessment of the Antichrist than what Pope Gregory has given here. In fact, ironically enough, it's the exact opposite. And a great example of this is given to us through the story of Hanukkah, a story that is recorded in the Apocrypha, specifically in the historical books of the Maccabees. It is a story that was prophesied of in the book of Daniel, and it is a story that is confirmed by Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, to be true to be that Daniel's prophecy of what he prophesied in Daniel 8, it came to pass in the form of Antiochus. Well, what is it about? It's all about the Antichrist. That's what it's about. It's about the coming of the Antichrist. And what's amazing is, is when we look at this story, we're given special insight into the character of the Antichrist in regard to his nature, in regard to his behavior patterns. I mean, we get to see this. It's a very intimate look. Well, when you, when you, most of you are familiar with the story of Hanukkah, for those of you who are not, there's a main villain in this story, and his name is Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. And another humble gesture of a name here, meaning God manifest. It's really interesting. But he rose to power in 175. Exactly how Daniel prophesied it would come to pass. It's interesting. Read Daniel 8 and you'll talk about Alexander the Great. He was ruler of the kingdom of Greece. He fell. He fell at an early age in his 30s. 
And four notable horns rose up, and literally four of his commanders took over that entire Greek empire, the entire thing. And one of them, we're told, according to Daniel, would, would, would become extremely powerful. One of them would be a notable horn, and he would push to the east, and he would push to the south, and he would push to the glorious land, meaning to Yerushalayim. And guess what? That's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He pushed to the glorious land. And what's so fascinating about this is when you break open the Maccabees, and just those books are, are, are it's just history. When you break open those books and you look at the history, right in chapter 1 in Maccabees, right off the bat, we're given a characteristic of the Antichrist. And you know what that characteristic was right off the bat? It was deception. Antiochus has said to come to them total and total deception. In other words, he came peaceably. He came as a, as a bringer of peace, if you will, when in fact his full intent was to unleash hell. And that is exactly what he did on Yerushalayim. Thousands of thousands of Jews were slaughtered. The temple was totally desecrated and destroyed. It was just abomination. It's what is called the abomination of desolation. This is what happened. So right off, we, we see this introduction of a characteristic of how the Antichrist will come in. He will do it deceivingly. This is how he does it. Well, let me, we're going to jump ahead a few verses in chapter 1, and I want to pick it up right here. Then the king Antiochus wrote to the whole kingdom that all should be one people. Now I want to draw something to your attention. The last time we see this happening prior to this, where there is a call that all should be one people, is Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Interesting how everyone wanted to come in. And make no mistake, there was one language, there was also one economy. That's the last time we see it until we get to Antiochus, who wants everyone to be one. Now you look in fast forward to today, and what do we see now? We see a push for one world government. Know this, the spirit of Antichrist is moving. He is moving fiercely. And you think about the UN. You think about our economy. I mean, we could go down this road. I don't want to get distracted. But we are pushing for a one-world economy. I mean, just look at what's happening. The UN is to forge a new world order, is to forge one-world government. That's Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And we know these things because we can read Genesis 11. And we know these things because we read about Antiochus. This is how we know these things. Scripture educating us. The Holy Spirit writing truth into our hearts. And let me just say this before we get off of this. If you study Genesis 11, do you want to know how close we are to the very end? When they decided to collectively get together as one people, it's what prompted the coming of the Lord to come down. It's what prompted his coming. And so as you see what's unfolding right now, this is exactly, that's how close we are. And all you need to do is read the prophecies in Zechariah, the prophecy in Zechariah 14. What's, what was prophesied in Joel 3, it is happening right now. The spirit of Antichrist is moving. And that all should give up their particular customs. All Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Listen to this. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. This is not just about secular people going along with the status quo. This was about Jews called to holiness 
And they were deceived by the Antichrist. They were deceived by the spirit of Antichrist. They adopted what he had presented. And you know, it's interesting, and we didn't put this up here. There's just so much. We could talk about this for weeks. But one of the things that Antiochus did to allure them, to seduce them, he just didn't come in with intimidation and fear. No, no, no. He came in willing to pay, literally, with gold and silver, to offer people money, to be blessed, to be rich, if they just compromise the faith. This is what he did. They sacrificed to idols. And what did they do? They profaned the Sabbath. One of the things that is mentioned with this move of the Antichrist is this, by name, profaning the Sabbath. You think of all the commandments that could be mentioned. And his profaning the Sabbath comes up. Moving on, verse 44. And the king sent letters by messengers to Yerushalayim and the towns of Yehuda. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land. Why would they be strange to the land? Because the land was to be governed by Torah. Of course they're strange. The land was to be governed by the Torah. And to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary. And look at this. To profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile a sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts, shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals. Verse 48. To leave their sons uncircumcised, they were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane. Why? So that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. Isn't that interesting? We see the ultimate goal. You want to understand the spirit of Antichrist. You want to understand the devil, our adversary. Understand what his ultimate goal is. Forget the Torah. You need to forget the Torah. Walk away. Just walk away. This is the ultimate goal. And jumping ahead to Second Maccabees, the writer literally condenses the whole thing in a nice little package. And this is what he says. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian center to compel. It's very important here to compel, to seduce, okay, to manipulate. The Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer live by the laws of God. Going on to verse 2. Also to pollute the temple in Yerushalayim and to call it the temple Olympian Zeus. So we start changing the names. It's still the temple. This is the temple of God, but we're not going to call it that. Now we're going to call it the, the, the temple of Olympian Zeus. And to call the one in Gerizim, now there was also one in Gerizim, right? Because of the Samaritans. This is where the Samaritans worshipped. You're to call that one the temple Zeus, the friend of strangers, as did the people who lived in that place. Moving on to verse 6. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, not so much as confess themselves to be Jews. Think about that. No more Sabbaths, no more feasts, and you can't identify with anything Jewish. Anything that pertains to being Jewish, you got to abandon it. Moving on to verse 56. Keep all this stuff in the back of your mind. The books of the law that they found, they tore in pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenants or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. So what does the spirit of Antichrist hate? He hates, he loathes the Torah. 
He hates your possession of the Torah, of the law of God. And most of all, he hates your adherence to it. Absolutely loathes it with every cell of his being. And guess what? He will do anything, whatever it takes to break that. He will do whatever it takes to take it from you. But there is some good news in this story, and I always like to focus where we can, like we did last week on Jeroboam. There's some good news in this story, and here it is. But many in Israel stood firm. They stood firm. They didn't compromise. They held ground to holiness, to the Torah, to the truth, and were resolved in their hearts, what? Not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. In fact, there's an interesting story that the Maccabees records. I didn't put it up here. But there was an old scribe, very well-respected, very pious. He was a holy scribe by the name of Eliezer. And just so you understand the mode of operation of the spirit of Antichrist, the Seleucid soldiers, when they went out on behalf of of uh, the Antichrist or Antiochus, very close. Uh, they literally took handfuls of swine, of pork, and they physically shoved them in the mouths of the Jews. Shoved them in their mouths. Eliezer was resolved to follow his God, the God of Israel, and he actually spit out the swine. He spit it out. He would rather die than to compromise the commandments of God. But I share this with you because one of the things that we see, his character, his nature of what the devil loves to do is he wants to defile the temple. And we are the temple of the Ruach HaKodesh, amen? We're the temple of the living God. He wants to defile it. And he'll do it by any means necessary, whether by trickery or by force if he has to. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for trickery, for seduction? Are you prepared to hold your ground if it costs you your life? See, this is when the faith gets real. This is when the faith gets real. And find out, we find out who we really are, right, as believers, real quick. Make no mistake, we as believers in Yeshua, we, we are called. We are called to make a distinction, We're called to make a distinction between what is holy and what is not holy. What is pure and what is not pure. What is clean and what is not clean. It's what we're called to do. I want to share with you a passage from Ezekiel where the Lord chastises the Kohanim, the priests. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. How? They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy. Now, let me stop right here. It's one thing for sheep not to make this distinction, and they'll account for it on a day. But when you have the Kohanim, do you know the Kohanim? Most people just think, oh, they were just involved in the temple sacrifices. No, no, no. The number one thing the Kohanim were involved in was the teaching of the word of God. They were shepherds. They were the shepherds of the flock. So being the shepherd of the flock, what is your job? Your job is to make a distinction, to share with the sheep what is clean and what isn't clean, what is holy and what isn't holy. And I ask you, when the shepherds stop teaching that, what happens to the sheep? 
the enemy comes in and absolutely destroys them. There's no knowledge. There's no making no distinction. This is scary. Nor have they made known the difference between unclean and the clean. And look at what they are accused of. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Interesting little tidbit we get in regard to the Shabbat. Something that really puts it into context and should hit a believer hard. When we hide our eyes from his Sabbath, when we turn and we do our own pleasure on his holy day, a day that is set aside for us to come and confess him as the Lord who has sanctified us and purified us, when we hide our eyes, we profane him. Is there a heavier term? Is there more weight that you could possibly put on this? It's to profane his holy name by not observing the Shabbat. So with that said, let's sum up what we saw Antiochus Epiphanes do, what he imposed upon the people of God. Let's go through this. Antiochus Epiphanes banned the study and observance of Torah, even to the point, as we covered, if they even found you in possession of a copy of the Torah, they would have burned it. But if they would have went farther than that, they would have killed you. So if you even possessed a copy of the Torah, you're dead. Okay? If you observe the Torah, you're dead. What does the devil hate? He hates the Torah. He loathes the idea of you possessing the Torah. He despises it. Let's look at the the next thing here. Antiochus banned the observing of biblical feast days, which he did. You cannot honor all the things that are held sacred by the living God. Can't do it. He also forced the people to eat unclean food. And look at this. He banned them from observing the Sabbath day. You notice anything familiar about this list? Because every single one of these things that are on the screen have been embraced by the church. Willingly. Every single one of these things. In all those passages we have covered in history, whether it's uh, Methodius or Ignatius or Justin Martyr or Lactantius or Constantine, Eusebius, all these men and everything they said, I challenge you to go back and look at all the passages we covered and you will see this list just unfold. If that isn't chilling, I don't know what it is. I, I, you, I, I think I live in Crazyville when I'm going through this stuff. Go, this just cannot be. This is make-believe. This is worse than, than a horror movie. If we would just read our Bibles, you know, you know what we'd see? We would see the devil. If we read the Bibles, we would see him moving. We would see him in our heart. We would see him in our homes. If we just read our Bibles, we'd see him in the church. That's what this is. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light. It sheds light on darkness. The Bible tells us what's right and wrong. It tells us what's clean and unclean. It tells us what's holy and what isn't holy. It tells us what the Sabbath is. It tells us when it is. It tells us why it is. And what it's about. There's no ambiguity whatsoever. You know, you could, you could boil it all down to this. This book, the Bible tells you everything that the devil doesn't want you to know. 
That's what it tells us. Let me take you to Daniel chapter 7 and show you some more spirit of Antichrist. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Now, this is interesting. If you study the story of Hanukkah and when Antiochus went into the temple, it's actually recorded as he's desecrating it in a filth manner, totally filthy. It was said he was elated. He was elated, intoxicated, like the woman drunk on the abominations of the earth. It was just, it's sick. And here we have this, this spirit of Antichrist. He'll speak pompous words against the Most High. She'll persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to what? To change times and law. And I want to be very clear. This isn't governmental law. This is talking about one. This is talking times appointments. God's appointments. This is talking about God's Torah. And the spirit of Antichrist, his goal is to come and do away with it. His goal is to come and alter it, to change it. Let me show you what we're up against because we need to have some perspective here of our adversary. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives, deceives. The word there in the Greek is planao. And you know what it means? It means to cause someone to wander from the truth. To wander. He deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so the emphasis here in this passage is obviously the fact that Satan possesses a supernatural ability to deceive. Supernatural. You want to know how supernatural? Well, let me take you back just a couple verses to verse 4, and we get some perspective. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What it's talking about in regard to stars and a third, it's actually talking about a third of the angels in heaven. Angels who were perfect spirit beings who basked in the glory of the Most High God. These angels, he was able to seduce them to fight for him, to attempt to overtake the throne. I mean, you want to talk about some context. How did he do it? Who is this being? How did he actually do that? Well, look at this. It's his tail. We're told the tail drew the third of the stars. Well, what does this stand for? Fortunately, the prophet Isaiah tells us exactly what this stands for. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. The prophet who teaches lies. He's a liar and the father of it, Yeshua says. Right? Gospel of John, he is a liar and the father of it. So it's Satan with his mouth literally alluring with false hopes, he deceived a third of heaven. I, there's been times that I sat down, you guys, and I kid you not, I can't wrap my mind around that. How that is possible. To be perfected, to dwell in his glory, to see him for as he is. That someday we're promised we will, because we will be like him, according to John. And they, this guy was so good at what he did. He was so clever that he got him to join his team. So he could never deceive the church. 
He could deceive a third of heaven. But he could never deceive the church. That's just totally outrageous, Daniel. You go too far. You think about that statement, how ludicrous this is and how arrogant we are. How arrogant we are. We look at church today. We look at history of the church. And it's very easy to recognize something. The enemy is in the camp. He is inside and he is sowing total destruction, seducing believers to abandon the law, to abandon feasts, to abandon the Shabbat. We need to wake up because the devil is working us over from the inside. And look at what Peter says. But there will also be false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers, where? Among you. They're not outside. They're inside the building. They're in the body of believers. They're among us. And what are they doing? They are secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Abominable heresies, spirit of Antichrist. Spirit of Antichrist is flowing when they bring in these heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. There's an illustration I'd like to use here from, actually, he's a Roman philosopher, Cicero. And the reason I'm bringing this to the table is because this really captures what I'm trying to convey to you right now in an amazing way. And I was actually blessed enough that I was, I was sent this by one of our viewers, uh, I'll just, her first name's Sherry, but she is a blessed sister in the faith and she prays. She's a prayer warrior. Just a big blessing for us. But she sent this and I was like, this is absolutely exactly what I'm trying to convey. It's it's amazing how the Lord works. I want to read this to you. This is going to blow your mind. A nation, and think church, people. A church can survive its fools and even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gates is less formidable, for he is known and carries his banner openly. But the traitor moves amongst those within the gate freely, his sly whispers rustling through all the alleys, heard in the very halls of government itself. For the traitor appears not a traitor, He speaks in accents familiar to his victims, and he wears their face and their arguments. He appeals to the baseness that lies deep in the hearts of all men. He rots the soul of a nation or a church. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of the city. He infects the body politic so that it can no longer resist. A murderer is less to fear. The traitor is the plague. A traitor is the plague. And what I'm telling you is that a plague is inside the house. The plague has entered the church. And what do we do? We fight back. When you discover what a traitor is, who he is, and what he has done to you, do you just sit there and go, oh, well, might as well let him destroy everything. You fight back. You open the word of God. You commit your heart your soul, your strength to Yeshua. You become a bearer of light. You bring truth as these very men who were called preachers of Antichrist by Gregory the Great. You go out and you preach the truth, the whole truth, what we call the full gospel. This is what we do. This is what we're called to do in this age. Where are the men Where are the men that are going to stand up, stand toe-to-toe with evil and call it 
evil. When are we going to go to our brothers and sisters, our, our believing brothers and sisters, and say, listen, there's some issues, and we need to talk. They're serious. This is as serious as it gets when you realize that the spirit of Antichrist is free-flowing, and now to the point where we have homosexuals running the churches. Gays and lesbian pastors, priests, you can't make that stuff up. I want to close with a passage from the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? When we signed up, when we confessed Yeshua with our mouth and asked him to abide in our heart, that's commitment. We made a commitment. We now are to become slaves of righteousness. And I love Spurgeon. He gives a commentary on this. Abiding under power of any known sin is a mark. It's a mark of the beast. Make no mistake. Of our being the servants of sin. For his servants ye are to whom you obey. This is the one thing that really frustrates me. When we talk about the mark of the beast, understand what it is. When you are a servant to sin. What is sin? According to 1 John, it is lawlessness. Torahlessness. That's how we define sin. Wonder why Satan wants to take the law away from the church? So that they cannot define what sin is. The spirit of Antichrist just keeps revolving. It makes me want to vomit. It makes me want to vomit. When I can see what he is doing to the churches, I have to wipe my eyes. It's, 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 it's too unreal. It's too surreal for words. When you start to study the Shabbat, you realize something, and I hope you have already. This is not about one commandment. The series is not about one commandment. It's so much bigger than that. It's just merely serving as a gateway to a much broader understanding. It's bigger than the feast. It's way bigger than that. What are we dealing with ultimately when we, when we impress upon this subject matter? We're dealing with truth. We're dealing with God's word as a whole. This is what's at stake. With that said, I'm going to have everyone rise. We're going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we say, today we will go to war. We will not fear, we will not faint, we will not give in to the flesh, and we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight, and we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray as Yeshua taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Everyone bow your head. Music team can come back up. Abba Father, we just come to you in the mighty and holy name of your son, the Lord Yeshua who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And it is through you, Lord Yeshua, that we have life and have it more abundantly. And you said, if we loved you, we would keep your commandments. And Lord, I pray if we are falling short, and every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God, but if we're living in sin, if we're in bondage, and we don't even know it, Lord, I just pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit in this place as we go into the, to the last song here. I pray that you pour out and convict your people, Lord. We want to be a holy lump. And we pray for purification. We pray for that holiness. We pray for humility. Lord, I pray for love. I pray for compassion. I pray for mercy. I'm in awe of you, Lord Yeshua, as, I, as I, I've read this week so much about your mercy and how you went out and you just showed such beautiful compassion to the people that were in total bondage to the devil. Lord, I just pray, anoint us with power to go and preach the gospel, the full gospel in power to preach repentance and remission of sins as you commanded your apostles. May we be those men, Lord. Equip us, encourage us, give us the wisdom and understanding to make this happen. We pray for unity in this building. I pray for brokenness. I just pray for total brokenness, Lord. For when we are weak, then we are strong. And only in the state of that weakness is your power manifested. We just pray for that this evening, Lord. I just I pray for this community as a whole. There's people that need healing. There's people that are still in bondage. And I know your return is imminent. It is at the door. You are at the door and you are crying out to your people. Come to me. Repent. You're such a loving and a good God. We thank you for being patient with us, Lord Yeshua. And we don't deserve it. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, may your truth go out. The word will not be chained. That's the, your power, Lord. You cannot be held down by the adversary. And so we just ask for you to move, move mightily and stir revival, Lord, in our hearts.